Amy Dunn is one of the most fascinating antagonists in cinema the last 10 years. David Fincher directed The Incredible Gone Girl back in 2014. We're so excited to explore this sinister, conniving, highly intelligent, and sometimes very evil character with Izzy from Be Kind Rewind. Hi, Izzy. How are you? I'm doing very, very well. How are you? We're excellent. Fantastic. Happy to have you here. And welcome back to another episode of Raiders of Lost Podcast, everyone. We're doing an episode of Evil Explored of one of the greatest characters in contemporary cinema, Amy Dunn from Gone Girl. And I just love talking about David Fincher movies in general. We just saw The Killer. We did an episode on that last week. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet, but I'm I'm excited to see it. I'm a big Fincher fan. Perfect. You're going to love it, I think, because it has the aesthetic and tone of Gone Girl and Dragon Tattoo. And I really love the style he's been creating, but... The character focus on his films is one of his greatest strengths as a filmmaker, and the character piece and study of Nick Dunn and Amy Dunn, both in Gone Girl, is just sets it apart. It makes it one of Fincher's best and one of my favorite thrillers, suspense movies of the last decade, hands down. Amy Dunn is one of the best written characters I've seen on screen this decade, this this century, and Gillian Flynn's book is incredible. It really comes down to the writing, and then... The incredible performance by Rosamund Pike. She's absolutely dynamic in this film and really makes the film work because it's a character who's like, is she a villain or is she an anti-hero? It's kind of like this gray area where you're not even sure. I mean, she's she's wicked and evil and she does horrible things. But, you know, she was kind of created out of her out of her childhood and basically became this like kind of monster inside and you kind of really feel for her and understand everything that she's doing and where she's coming from. So it's, it really comes down to her performance in the writing by Gillian Flynn. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I think it's so impressive that this was her first screenplay. I mean, I watched it again last night just to prepare for this podcast. And there were so many moments where I was like, this is so, you know, it's like groundbreakingly clever, but it is a very well put together kind of mystery, strange subversion of the kind of psychological thriller that um Fincher likes to do so yeah just the way that she kind of layers these stories together and puts you one way and then drags you another really quickly it's really fascinating so I was I was very impressed I was kind of the first I was kind of the perfect audience for this movie when I first saw it I don't even think I knew what the book was and they were very clever about not putting any of the um spoilers in the marketing so when I when we get to that final twist and like the halfway point or whatever, I was absolutely blown away. I had literally no idea that it was coming. So I really got the full experience of it. It's great that you point out, the, it's great you point out the marketing because the first image they released was an entertainment weekly cover and it was Ben Affleck holding Rosamund Pike's dead body in the morgue. And then the trailer ended with her body floating down the river. So I walked into this movie thinking that she was going to die for sure. So the twist halfway through absolutely floored me. And well, we don't want to spoil it right away, or we kind of can. Yeah, man. I mean, spoil if, you've, it. if you're listening late. to this episode, I just you, did. Pro- you probably would have. <laughs> yeah, you, you've yeah. probably seen Gone Girl. But before we get more into it, Izzy, can you tell us and our listeners about you and your show and your, your channel and everything, what you do? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. So um, I run a YouTube channel called Be Kind Rewind, which basically looks at Hollywood history and broadly through the stories of different actresses um it's not only that you know i do a lot of videos like comparing different adaptations of of novels or different film versions of things that have been made but um broadly speaking i just like to i guess keep the stories of hollywood history alive and kind of use things like 
the Oscars as a MacGuffin to tell stories about like different film movements or like how film and politics related to each other in the 50s and things like that. So um, if you enjoy that kind of thing, yeah, definitely stop by my channel. I think. And besides YouTube, where can they find you? Yeah, where can they find you besides YouTube? Uh, yeah, I'm on all of the social media apps um i don't use tiktok that often but i'm on there technically <laughs> uh, i'm bk rewind on twitter and tiktok and then bk underscore rewind on instagram tiktok's basically like a job requirement if you make content yeah. whether you want to be on there or not these <laughs> days <laughs> it's like our bread and butter i i just don't have like the brain for it like i don't know how to tell a story in like 60 seconds it's so hard for me <laughs> it's tough but we we've, we've managed to work it out for ourselves but let's get back into gone girl and everybody go check out be kind rewind on youtube and on the socials and like anthony said one of the best parts of the character amy dunn is she a villain or an anti-hero and i think that it might be a misconception that she's an anti-hero because anti-heroes are redeemable and even though Amy Dunn has a lot of empathy built for her and her backstory, her trauma and being used by her parents to create the persona and basically of amazing Amy or competition, which will obviously break down. She's not redeemable because she does horrible things in this film, commits murder. And so I think for that fact, she has to be labeled as a villain, no matter how much you root for her. And I root for her the whole film. Every time I watch this, I've seen this movie like nine times and it's because of Amy Dunn. I don't think she can be an anti-hero. I don't know what you guys think about that. And what's interesting, I, I would get behind her being more of a villain than an anti-hero. And what's what's so fascinating is she's a villain that wins in the end. She gets what she wants. She gets the husband, Nick Dunn, on, on her leash. And she's able to be able to control him now, finally, by the end of the film. So she's able to mold, finally be able to mold the guy she wants for the public perception of basically becoming the real life version of Amazing Amy and really getting that husband locked down with the with the boyfriends from the past. She was never able to really control them that much and they were able to break away. And then obviously she, she just destroyed Tommy and we don't know too much about how she destroyed Desi, but we can assume there's a little bit there because he says she kept him on a leash. That's like the only line of dialogue we get from that. But she's always been searching for the man that she can uh, mold into her unrealistic expectations that were created inside of her psyche because of growing up with an amazing Amy Shadow. So at the end of the film, she's a villain that gets what she wants, which you rarely see in movies. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's, I think the answer is she's kind of all of these things at once. Like she is a villain. She's an anti-hero. She's a femme fatale. Um, and not a lot of femme fatales survive either. So <laughs> it's a strange film in that way to see her kind of succeed, but also kind of leave open the possibility that, you know, maybe 10 years down the line or 18 years down the line when their kid is able to leave home, like that's exactly what Nick is going to do too. That's kind of what he talks about with Margot at the end. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. She's so strange. And I think that's what's so compelling about her is you, not only do you rarely see a villain win period, but you rarely see like a female villain win. And you just love it. Very violent yeah. Yeah. Great yeah. point. I love it so much. And the thing with her, I would love to just break down and we can all talk about the origin of this internal rage, this internal monster that's been buried deep down that we see glimpses of eventually and that she's been giving glimpses of in her life of finally unleashing completely on Nick Dunn, her husband, which clearly started in her childhood where her parents created Amazing Amy based off her, this book series. However, Amazing Amy is amazing at everything, even though Amy Dunn's a highly intelligent person and very... She's terrific at so many things. Very She's capable. very charismatic. And, but Amazing Amy was better than her at everything. Not just better than her at everything, whether it was playing music or sports. She was a prodigy. And like Anthony said, she lived. Amy lived in the shadow of Amazing Amy, never being able to achieve the things that Amazing Amy could. So her parents had a favorite child, and it was a fictional, fictionalized version of her. Yeah, was, like great villains in of film and villains of the real world, they're created through their environment and Amazing Amy was the creation of the real Amy because Amazing Amy wasn't just a prodigy, it wasn't just great at everything. She succeeded at all of the real Amy's failures and all the real Amy's problems and then living in that shadow. And in a way, Amy's parents took that away from her. They took her successes away. They took the things she wanted away from her and they took love, attention, um, creating independence and individuality and they gave it all to the fictional Amy. And so that created this construct of a need for attention and insecurity and also the need for these unrealistic expectations because she's competing her entire childhood with this perfect version of herself on paper. And so as an adult, she's trying to create that perfect version of herself in the real world, hence trying to find a man she can mold and trying to have a surface level version of the perfect life. So that in that way, everything that her parents took away from her, she's trying to build as an adult. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you kind of talk about Desi and kind of not being clear exactly how her manipulative tactics were used upon him. Um, and something that I found interesting this time around and that I never really gave a lot of thought to in prior viewings was like when he gets when she gets to his lake house, how it's sort of like she he's kind of mirroring her behavior. So like he's really interested in her cutting her hair and like being the perfect version of amazing Amy. And it's only okay when she is like attempting to be that when she's in control of that versus like when somebody else is imposing that vision upon her the way that her parents might have, then that's when she's liable to kind of rebel and push back and even as we see get violent. Um, so I thought that was really interesting to see kind of how she rebelled against that not not only with like her parents but also just in this very immediate kind of dangerous situation for her where she once again kind of loses control that's a great point yeah because she wants to control it not someone else control her and he said he says the line i just want you to be you again yeah and be, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And what's interesting about Desi on the surface, Desi, you kind of sort of look like he's already what she would want in terms of the perfect person. He's very wealthy, very intelligent, connected. On the surface, it's like that's the guy that Amy is trying to take all these other guys, mold them into. But probably because he's already fully formed in terms of that, she can't mold him. And like uh, Izzy said, that he's controlling her. Maybe that's why yeah. she's not attracted to. Him. And she broke up with him too. That's, that's exactly why Desi became this version of himself on his own. Whereas he, this is why she goes back to Nick because she realizes Nick's the guy I can control and Nick's the guy that I can have do whatever I want and become the person that I can keep on a leash in a way. Whereas Desi, she quickly found is v gonna be the one in control and the one in power in the situation if she's in a relationship with him. She would be completely powerless yet again. And so with Nick, she can have the power. So that's one of the reasons why she goes back to Nick. That's a great point. Yeah, and I think part of it, this is why the casting of this film is so smart to me. I mean, I really think every single person is just so on point. Like there's kind of this boyish, glamour about um about ben affleck or like every girl i knew had a crush on him in like 2000 you know what i mean mm -hmm. so did i <laughs> <laughs> like, there it's just like he was that kind of guy and like that kind of face and so there's something about like being able to mold that man specifically into your ideal versus like neil patrick harris hasn't hasn't is kind of beloved i think but not that in that way so like her kind of being able to find like that cute guy that everybody wants to get to know or like has a specific type of charm um, is kind of part of the the package too, where she's looking for a very specific kind of victim as a not yeah easily follows her yeah. Not and, to mention Ben had so much controversy with the press and tabloids for fifteen twenty years, and he already kind of was sort of a Nick Dunn character when Nick Dunn's placed in the public eye. Everybody either loves or hates the guy. Ben had that for like ten years, and we've always loved Ben Affleck, and we're so great. He's had such an incredible resurgence as a filmmaker and actor the last ten years. But in the two thousands, he was. Just just tabloid material. He was making some very mediocre material uh, movies and everything. And also, I mean, Nick Dunn. Amy made a mistake by marrying Nick Dunn, thinking that she could turn him into the perfect guy. But she, what she didn't really understand is, uh, once she lost the power in the relationship, he just is going to be that same guy. He always was like the guy, the selfish guy, narcissist who likes to drink beer and watch Adam Sandler movies. But she felt that she could change him after becoming the cool girl to attract him. She could turn him into the husband she wanted, but then she lost the power in the marriage to the point where she was just there and he was the one in power and he was the one using her for her own narcissistic needs and own selfish desires. So she completely became powerless and she didn't realize, and that's the reason, one of the reasons why she ended up hating him is because she didn't realize that this guy, he really couldn't be changed until she got the power over him in the final act. The third act of this movie is incredible, where she impregnates herself with his stored semen, locking him in and basically take, say, taking away any of the power that he had. So then now for the rest of the, their marriage, she can probably turn him into that perfect husband. But at first, the first time around with the marriage, she didn't realize that she wouldn't be able to have the power to change him into what she wanted him to be. So she was blinded by, she's always been blinded by her unrealistic expectations, which are put upon her by amazing Amy. And so when she looks at a man, she's like, she doesn't look at his flaws. She doesn't be, she doesn't think like, oh, would I get along with this person? Can we have a good marriage? It's like, how can I turn him into what I want him to be? 
And that's that was the make, mistake she made with every relationship and with this marriage at first. I think it also shows the ending kind of shows the shortcomings of like a psychopath's love. <laughs> I, guess. I don't know how else to put it, but it's sort of like she feels the way that Rosamund Pike kind of performs the last couple of minutes. It's like she's very secure in the fact that she won. You know, it's like she's making us breakfast and she's like, I need you to do this so I can feel safe, which is a threat, basically. Tucking him into bed. Yes, 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 exactly. <laughs> but like, clear, like he can fake it. Like, it's very obvious that he knows like how to manipulate her because he knows what he wants. So it's almost like by being so aggressive about her own standards, she also reveals like the ways that she can be manipulated too. Um, and that's kind of what he does in the interview with the journalist where he's sort of like, I, I know exactly what I can say to bring her home. Um, so it is kind of that push and pull between the two of them knowing each other so well. I like to always look at their marriage and wonder if they even loved each other because multiple times Amy talks about how they're playing roles. You know, they both played an act in this marriage and Amy became cool girl and then Nick became the guy that she wanted. And I have a great line from her that I would love to to read out. So Nick teased things out of me I didn't know existed, a lightness, a humor and ease. But I made him smarter, sharper, inspired him to rise to my level. I forged the man of my dreams. We were happy pretending to be other people. We were the happiest couple we knew. And what's the point of being together if you're not the happiest? But Nick got lazy. He became someone I didn't agree to marry. He actually expected me to love him unconditionally. Then he dragged me penniless, penniless to the navel of this great country and found himself a newer, younger, bouncier, cool girl. You think I let him destroy me and end up happier than ever? No fucking way he doesn't get to win. So they both know they're playing roles in this marriage, but what happened was Nick stopped playing that role and became lazy and then found someone new. And it's really like that perfect persona, the perfect front. It couldn't, it, it's in, it, incapable of surviving hardship. So they both lost their jobs and then his mother was sick with cancer and ended up passing away. So the real life hardships made these, pers these uh, personifications of themselves crumble basically with no foundation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's totally on point. And I know, like, I, I'm really fascinated by the debates that have kind of sprung up about that monologue specifically. I mean, I feel like that was a big talking point when it originally came out in 2014 of does the cool girl even exist? What does that mean? Is she right? Is she wrong? Is she actually misogynist? It's all of those kind of debates wrapped up into one. But I think what's kind of valuable about the film is that it makes us ask those questions like what is driving her crazy what is this standard that she's looking at like how does it play out in our own lives so i think it's maybe like flawed when that debate happened to frame it as like is she right or is she feminist or all those kinds of things it's just kind of like better to engage with those ideas and see what kind of conversations come out of them yeah i think the cool girl i actually related to it when i first watched the film because i think we all do that a until we find ourselves because when we're young and we're trying to court someone and we're trying to attract someone's attention, especially if you're like a teenager or even even in your early 20s before you're confident in yourself. And this is maybe because you didn't have any semblance of a normal childhood. If you're interested in someone, you're like, oh, maybe if they if I listen to the same music they listen to, they'll like me more. Maybe if I dress similarly to how they dress, maybe they'll like me more. So in a way, we'll. I personally, definitely when I was a teenager, would change things about myself 
to attract the person I had a crush on. I can confirm that. And so I think that's an actual that <laughs> that's a reality that I think a lot of people face. And then this just took it to the extreme because because she never really grew out of that childhood sense of needing the perf- the perfect husband. And I think that I think for me personally, I really myself related to the cool girl monologue in that regard, not to that extremity, but in some ways. Totally. I mean, I think what's interesting is like the examples that she uses. She, you know, she's driving down the highway and she looks at the other women in the car and kind of guesses what men they're trying to attract based on what they look like. And what I think is really interesting is that like she doesn't necessarily form herself to what she thinks Nick would want. Like she, she, she talks about it, but we never see that happening. Like she, she talks about, you know, watching the Adam Sandler movies and stuff. But when we actually see her in flashbacks, she's like pretty contemptuous of everything that he does by himself. Um, and so it is just sort of this looming, like parental societal standard that she's actually more concerned with than actually like what her husband is doing and interested in. Yeah, it's actually it's kind of connected to Barbie with the societal standards of mm-hmm. the men and women and like what we're told from like a corporate level and from media of like what the perfect version of ourselves would be to attract someone else. That's actually interesting. And one of my favorite parts of the film, and I think one of the great strengths is the nonlinear storytelling as well as the unreliable narrator, which we love in a Fincher movie. You know, Fight Club is one of the best examples of the unreliable narrator. But Amy Dunn is very much an unreliable narrator because we get a great job of of reality in terms of the journal entries and the diary entries of things that really happened that morphs into fictionalized versions with a sprinkle of reality and truth but as the audience your first time watching it you think it's all real because she's such she's, she's been reliable for the first act telling the story of their courtship which is very sweet and charming i love the way they meet and everything and how they eventually get engaged it's a very cute and I like that. It's the library stuff and everything like that. The 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 powdered <laughs> You're snow. You're a big softy. The villainous chin. It's really <laughs> charming stuff. And the I like the courtship phase because it's very endearing. And we believe Amy and everything she's telling us in her journal entries. We believe that Nick is becoming emotionally abusive, which he eventually does, and physically abusive, which there's probably no confirmation that that actually happened. But when we're watching it, we believe everything that Amy's telling us in her journal entries. And it's not until she disappears that big twist, the reveal of fading to black we hear the great shift in music and after nick opens the garage and finds everything in there and she's on the freeway living her life and just her plan has succeeded and we're like oh my god amy's alive it's incredible and then you you can't trust her the rest of the film but you root for her entirely it's interesting that you point out the the writing because we learn in the second or the half of the film she started the diary as a whole plan and she says i gotta include everything even the good stuff uh, for, for this master elaborate plan. But the thing is, what's interesting is r- fantasy and novelization of things is ingrained in her entire life. Obviously, Amy, Amazing Amy, the novels that her, her mother wrote about the perfect version of her. Then also, we see Amy reading a lot. And this is before she was even doing her plan. She's a voracious reader. Voracious she reader. has a book in her hand. <laughs> exactly. So she lives in the fantasy. Skelter. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a kind of a weird one. <laughs> um, so she's always been invested in fantasy. And there's another great hint of that when they're doing the first scavenger hunt. This is the first after they just got married. And they're doing the first clue hunt back when Nick enjoyed it. And they were a happy couple. And one of the clues is found in a Jane Austen novel in the library. This is basically showing that 
she desires that fantastical romance from those novels, that real, that fantasy fat passion, that fantasy romance, the unrealistic romance. But she's obsessed with fantasy, and she's obsessed with maybe attaining that kind of unrealistic version of a romance and of a relationship. And so that's why she puts it in the Jane Austen book, I think. So the idea of fantasy and creating these out of fiction it all lends into the writing of the diary and then being a child and being in the shadow of this fictional version of herself. And I think Fincher's style of filmmaking is like the perfect vehicle to kind of deliver that fantasy because it's never, I mean, Fincher has a very specific like mode of filmmaking and it is very, it is unreal to me. And it is a little like, like scary by style, like not in an intense way, but it's like intimidating and a little bit, cold and calculating um and so to like tell that story through his lens specifically where it does feel like something's a little bit off it's not ever going to be a happy ending like that kind of slow shots held shots uh the, the Trent Ross Atticus I, I'm not sure if I'm getting their names right but yeah Res- Atticus Ross yeah, yeah Trent yeah. Reznor Atticus Ross yeah yes like that kind of music imprinted on it like there is something so just uncanny about it that makes it feel fantastical but in a way that is not like this is a rom-com it's like this is going to go sour quickly somehow it's he that actually, tone yeah he actually asked them to make uh, their version of spa music <laughs> that was that was his direction for their music and there you get that sense of it's soothing but also kind of like puts you on edge at the same time yeah yeah and then when eventually nick starts to get all the clues and starts to finally before he starts opening the garage and then the, the music starts to get really dark halfway through the film it's really powerful stuff because like as you're just saying he creates this tone not a lot of filmmakers can create their own kind of tone Kubrick could do it. Yorgos Lanthimos, we've talked about multiple times, is able to create this sort of tone. Like they're all our tours. Fincher is not a tour, but not many filmmakers create their own world. It feels like you're in a different reality, sort of, and you just know something's wrong. Something bad's eventually going to happen. No matter what movie you'll see of a Fincher movie, obviously you're going to feel it when you eventually watch The Killer for the first time. That tone is still there. It's great, but you just know it's a Fincher film just from the feeling of it and what he's doing directing-wise. And I think you're right. I think that he was the perfect director for this story, and he really did a great job portraying Amy Dunn's psychopathy because I would say she's psycho a psychopath. And the biggest piece of evidence is that she has no real personal relationships. So she never has had any friends. The only friend she makes is the neighbor. And she only makes that friend because she's manipulating her as a piece of evidence in her story. Other than that, she's never had any actual friends. And the only the only relationship she's ever had in her lives are the men whom she tries to control and turn into the version of themselves that she wants them to be. So that's been every single version of a relationship in her entire life. She's never really looked for any kind of personal mis- any kind of personal connection or a human connection to another human being ever. Good point. How about I run through Amy's plan real quick? Yeah. And then we'll head to our intermission and have some fun trivia games. Does that sound cool to you guys? Let's do it. All right. So Amy's plan basically is months of work 
putting this master plan together, which involves creating relationships and fake friendships like Anthony was just talking about with people. Months of mostly fictional journal entries, which describe Nick as a continuing emotional and eventually physical, physically abusive husband, as well as a cheater and neglecting her. Using her credit card to buy a garage full of things under his names. Also upping the life insurance policy under Nick Dunn's name. Elaborate clues for the treasure hunts, which are all basically an attack on Nick's personality and Nick's nature. A way to degrade him and connect him to his fallacies, basically. Uh, Like putting the panties in the office of the cheating and then the punching Judy dolls. He draws her own blood to stage her own murder. A ridiculous amount of blood. Hides the diary inside that burning stove at her fa- at his father's house, as well as plans to eventually kill herself in order to Nick Dunn to put Nick Dunn into prison. That's how far she's going to go. She's going to kill herself to frame her husband for murder so that he suffers and fits a punishment she deems worthy of what he's done to her. It's a master plan. It's awesome. <laughs> it's wild. It really, I mean, okay. Also, I think we should we need to mention. I don't know if you feel this way, but I think this is one of the funniest films I've ever seen. Yeah. I, think I crack up in this movie. I crack up. So funny. Yeah. A little post-it note that says kill self. <laughs> kill self. Kill self. Kill self. <laughs> and then eventually her plan changes where Nick starts to get a little control in the situation, getting the favor of the public by going on the television program. She shifts her plan and goes back to Nick by framing Desi as a rapist and basically kidnapper and holding her hostage in his home, murdering Desi. While he's climaxing, covering herself in blood, and then eventually going home to Nick, keeping the portrayal of her being this victim of both parties of Nick and Desi, but getting control not only over Nick, killing Desi, the person who's been obsessing and following her for years that she fed into, but then also maintaining the public eye of her being amazing Amy. It was a masterful improvisation and showed that she always had this amount of intelligence and capability and in motivation and will but both her parents and then nick kind of pressed that out of her and dominated her and prevented her from ever really showing how talented she was in the final part of the plan the contingency plan that anthony talked about of impregnating herself trapping nick for at least 18 years in the marriage yeah that's <laughs> genius it's like i i wish you had you just used your talents for other things <laughs> be a party planner well you can blame her parents really i think that's where it comes down to blaming her parents so yeah we can get into her parents in a little bit yeah but let's go into our intermission but before we continue the best way to support raiders of the lost podcast is to become a patron at patreon.com slash raiders of the lost podcast every patron has access to bonus episodes of our show every single week as well as an ad free experience of every single episode of the show for a minimum five dollar tier that ten dollar tier gets you access to our discord we have $2, $5, $10, $25, and $100. They all come with incredible perks, so definitely sign up today. You can also help us by spreading and sharing the word of our show. It's the best way for a podcast to grow is word of mouth and leave those five-star ratings on Spotify and Apple. We're at 2,400 on Spotify, almost at 2,000 on Apple. They help us get seen and rank on these apps really high, so thanks to everyone who's left us those reviews, and thank you so much again for all of our patrons. And again, you can get the ad-free experience on our show on Patreon and Spotify with the $5 tiers and up. And of course, our episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library. 
as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. They make a great gift for the movie lover in your life. The holiday season's coming up, so be sure to go to movieposters.com for all of your poster needs and use our coupon code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order right now. All right, let's head into our intermission, everybody. Izzy, this is your first time joining us, so we're going to do some fun games. And the first one is a movie quote competition, everybody. I'll go first. Y'all ready? Let's hear it. All right. I don't know, man. I woke up this morning to a tape of you slicing your arm open and punching the mirror. You seem pretty fucked up to me. Oh. Say it again. I don't know, man. I woke up this morning to a tape of you slicing your arm open and punching the mirror. You seem pretty fucked up to me. I have a secondary if you guys need another quote. I'm going to guess Nightcrawler. Got a guess, Izzy? Uh, no, I don't have a guess. <laughs> it's going to be... Well, I'll another give you, quote. I'll yeah, give you another it. quote, so I have two, because that might be tough. Come on, buddy. After a long day of Turing tests, you got to unwind. The Imitation Game. No. Oh, um, Ex Machina? Yes. Oh, nice. <laughs> Shit. Great Good one. one. Great quote. <laughs> Okay, here's my quote. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Hmm. Say one more time. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Hmm. Is this like a biopic of some kind? It's not, but it's an awesome pick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like V for Vendetta, but we just did that. I don't know. No. I don't know. Ooh. I, can give you, I can give you a hint. Sure. Ethan Hawke's in it. Oh, it's um, freaking formed. No, um, Captain, my Captain. What's it called? Dead Poet right Society. Dead Poet Society. Society. Yeah. Yes. Oh, damn. Damn. Carpe diem. <laughs> yeah. Car oh, Captain, my Captain was too easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that is actually the exact opposite of what something he would say in First Reformed. Now that. <laughs> um. Okay. Mine for you is, I will speak for you, Father. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I am their champion. I am their patron saint. Oh, that's a good one. Could you uh, say it again, please? Yep. I will speak for you, Father. I speak for all mediocrities in the world. I'm their champion. I'm their patron saint. I'm stumped. I don't know. I'm stumped. I'll give you a hint. Sure. Sure. Spoken by a musician. of Kind of, yes. Or someone involved with music. Mm-hmm. It's not helping me, is he? Is it um <laughs> is it a Wolfgang? I mean, is it Amadeus? Yes. Yes. Oh man. Yes. Nice. Yes. <laughs> Good job. Good quote. All right, you I love two. that movie. Guess this movie release year. What year did Big come out? No, I'm gonna three. Ninety one. Nineteen eighty eight. Oh damn. Ooh, wow. That is an old movie. Eighties movie. Yeah, okay. <laughs> damn. I really misjudged that. Okay. Wrong decade. <laughs> All right, what year did Dead Poet Society come out? Oh, I have literally no idea. <laughs> Try to think of like how Robin Williams looks in that 1992. Movie. Uh, $1, Bob. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go with that. 1989. Wow. wow. So close. See, that's my weak spot is the 90s and 80s. Especially around the late 90s, early, late 80s, early 90s. It's easy to mix them up. Yeah. yeah. Film all kind of look the same. Jeez, yeah. I guess so. Okay. What year did Best in Show come out? I'm going to go 1997. 
1992. 2000. 2000. Oh, my God. Wow. Wow. Yeah. wow. Oh, goodness. I was way off. <laughs> we all we all suck. <laughs> Let's move on to the movie pop quiz. Maybe we'll have better luck. Don't we all talk about movies for a living? What? <laughs> all right. Scarlett Johansson has two Oscar nominations. Can you name the films that she was nominated for? Marriage Story. One. And Jojo Rabbit. Two. You guys did it. Yeah. There you go. You nice job. Shot. Air five. Yeah. Air five. Hey. <laughs> I'm surprised she doesn't have more. Yeah. She was in the MCU for a while. You yeah, know? that's what MCU does, yeah. What was Ben Affleck's feature film debut as an actor? Now, he was an extra in a couple of movies, but I'm not going to count those. This is him actually performing and being an actor. What was the first movie he was an actor in? I'm going to... Ooh. It's, is it the one with Matt Damon? Matt Damon is in it. School ties. School ties. Well, I mean, the, the way I said that, it's like that could be a seven. <laughs> <laughs> pretend that's what I was talking. It was. About. It was actually Air that just came out this year. So, so <laughs> when did um, Mallrats come out? Like after that? Mallrats was ninety-seven, I think. All right, and then Mallrats is right before Goodwill Hunting. Two years before Goodwill Hunting. So Mallrats was like ninety-five, four, ninety-five, and then School Ties was early nineties, like ninety-three, ninety-four. Yeah, they actually so Damon. Um, Chris O'Connell, Ben Affleck, every, a bunch of people went up for the lead role that Brendan Fraser plays. Is a bunch of like now famous celebrities, big time actors, but Fraser is the one who won the lead role. Yeah, I don't think I've seen that. So oh, it's great! I it's great. Got that question right. Yeah, you got it. And, <laughs> you uh, helped. Yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. Is just Philip Seymour Hoffman's first movie too. Cool. Oh wow. Yeah, he's great in it. All right. According to Ellen Burstyn, how many deaths are associated? With the making of The Exorcist in 1993. Uh, in terms of like casting crew or like in general? Uh, well, associated. Yeah. It's like all of this kind of happened around like during the production. Yeah. We actually did an episode last year for we did Exorcist, a curse production and kind of broke down yeah. all the curses involved with The Exorcist. Oh, I need to watch that one. I need to watch that I'm going to say if we're talking about like casting crew and stuff like that. I'm going to say four. Jake's. She says nine. Wow. Whoa. Damn. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I think, yeah. I, think they're I think they're stretching it a little bit. She might be including the serial killer who was in it. Yeah. <laughs> like a gaffer whose mom died of, like, yeah. a long time. <laughs> she was 98. <laughs> yeah. she, she was 106, died out of nowhere. Like, <laughs> coincidence? I think not. <laughs> it was the devil, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, next up, we're going to do Let's go, uh, some fun things from the film. What is your favorite line from Gone Girl? Best line. Oh, favorite line from Gone Girl. Can I curse on here? Yeah, yeah. go ahead. Perfect. Okay. I mean, clearly mine is I'm that cunt. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> mine was I'm so much happier now that I'm dead. I love it. Yeah, mine would be. I forgot to do this one. Sorry. Um, you forgot your superlative. <laughs> Man, I thought we were just doing the the intermission part, not the superlatives. He's, wow. Thanks I will the, wing it. I will wing it right now. Oh, you got this, man. You're a smart guy. My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite line. Should I know my wife's blood type? No. No. <laughs> octopus and Scrabble is a real runner up for me too. <laughs> All right, next up, what's your favorite scene from Gone Girl? My favorite scene has to be 
the the montage uh which is kind of not so much a scene but the montage of nick discovering everything the truth but then opening the garage look so the garage the garage yeah. door reveal with the music and then it's just a shocking sequence mm -hmm. it's incredible it's great that's like the reveal of the twist for you Oh, mine's definitely the Desi murder. Um, <laughs> specifically, the little hair shake she does, where like somehow her face is the only thing that has zero blood on it. <laughs> it's so oh, I love it. <laughs> I love how for like a second she's like, "What did I just do?" But then she's like, "Nope, everything's cool." Yeah. I think she's. I think they did that to fool the audience and being like, "Oh, does she feel bad?" Like, no, she doesn't care at all. She never had it. <laughs> and then my favorite scene was. The reveal of Amy being alive in her car, and then that montage of her narrating her the series of events that led to her um, framing her husband. I think that that's like that three minute sequence is incredible, unbelievable. All right, now let's move on to our streaming recommendation for our listeners. James, what do you recommend people watch this week? So my stream recommendation is going to be a movie that's on Max Fargo, the Coen Brothers classic. Love this movie. Don't you know? Yeah, it's great murder mystery as well. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Good one. <laughs> My recommendation is The Killer on Netflix. We just did a review of it, so check that out. It was a great episode, and I love the film. Um, Mine is Jericho, which is on Mubi. Um, it's directed by Christian Petzold. It's an adaptation of postcards from... Or not postcards. What is it called? Um, oh, God. Hold on. I feel embarrassed that I miss remembering what this is called um what 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 else did pencil do he recently did a he did like an indie comedy he did phoenix um he did oh i'm thinking of a different i'm thinking of a different penciled i'm thinking of james penciled postman i'm thinking postcards but it's postman it's an adaptation of um postman always rings twice but it takes place in like modern germany and if you're into like scheming against your shitty husband <laughs> oh it's a relevant pick i love it a, i think it's relevant i'm adding it to my list it's about like bad marriages and cheating and uh you know trying to get rid of somebody you don't want around anymore so i think if you like this film it's it's a like artsy kind of foreign film that's a version of that a little bit i love check it. it out put yeah. it on the watch list. my list very cool all right, let's get back into our episode, breaking down Amy Dunn from Gone Girl, everybody. And how about we talk a little about a little bit about Nick and did he deserve what he got from Amy Dunn? Now, Nick is far from a perfect husband. He stopped putting in effort like we talked about. He makes Amy move to St. Louis without even asking her. Obviously, his mother's sick and she goes, of course, but she says that line. If he, I would have liked to be asked. Basically. I wish he would have asked. Uh, he becomes unfaithful to Amy, starts kind of using the same courtship te techniques that he does with her, especially the the sugar storm, the sugar clouds, and the chin thing. He becomes emotionally abusive, and in Amy's perspective, he milks her for every cent she has, takes everything away from her, the, the woman she was, and the woman she was trying to be for him. And for that, she plots this insane, wild master plan of extreme revenge against him, framing him for her own murder, sending him to prison, and even the death, the, the electric chair injection and just the life sentence. Yeah, so, I mean, does he deserve all this? Absolutely not. What he deserves is a, is a divorce. That's what he deserves. But I think that Amy's entire childhood and how she's developed into this psychopath is really like it seems to make sense. And all everything is fueled by rejection. So Nick's rejection of her, Tommy's rejection of her, 
Desi, I'm assuming, didn't never rejected her, but there's I. It's just really fascinating the the gray area of not really knowing too much about that. But we just get he's just too he's obsessed yeah. with her. That's the thing. Yeah. Stalks her exactly. So, but what? But Nick does reject her. You know, he he starts dating another woman. He takes her kiss from their kiss from her, and Tommy rejected her in terms of breaking up with her, not wanting to be with her anymore. And so she can't deal with rejection because her entire life was rejection. So in her eyes, this is what he deserves, obviously. Yeah, I, nobody deserves what happened to, to me. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think um, divorce probably would have been nice for both of them. And it's uh, <laughs> they never really came around to that. But, you know, yeah, I think um, I mean, I think it's interesting just kind of thinking about Nick since they're both kind of exploiting and playing with stereotypes about men and women um it's interesting to think of nick as like a representation of that and like these i guess weak kind of manipulative men who like aren't um who would like to find like easy routes to things i guess uh and how that plays off of her kind of being this strict i does she she uses the word shrew i think yeah or like harpy or something like these very stereotypical like harsh words to like describe herself and who she kind of has become um so yeah i think nick is really fascinating for that reason but yeah i don't think he necessarily deserved either the death penalty (laughs) um, to be sentenced to that kind of jail marriage that he we leaves us with and And, uh, but nick is just as much a narcissist as she is and really is the center of his own world in a lot of ways but what's interesting about amy is she always pursues weak men and like unformed men because she could she she could date like fully formed very responsible a great guy successful doing his own thing but she chooses to avoid that and there's actually a hint of that at the party where they meet she's getting a beer for the guy she's there with and Ben, Nick Dunn even jokes like, oh, which one is it? So she's clearly doing a favor for a guy. Like, shouldn't the guy get the beer, really? Like, chivalry, she doesn't care about chivalry. She's already serving the guy she's there with. And he's probably like a loser that she's thinking, I can mold him into what I want. So she always goes for, like, underdeveloped man-childs to try and be, turn them into the men she wants. And I think that party of her, she's on the way to bring a beer to that guy is a great hint that she's always she always goes for weak, unformed men in her Not pursuits. completely unformed, but someone beneath her. Yeah, so, like yeah, that's yeah. why she says I, I I brought him, made him sharper and smarter, and brought him to my level. So yes. someone beneath her that she can control because she needs to she needs to feel superior over somebody because she's always been inferior to Amazing Amy, the fictional version of herself. Yeah, great point. Yeah, that's the narcissist in her. I think that's also that. I think it's interesting that Nick writes at a men's magazine, like a men, I think it's, it's some kind of men's health or like men's, I don't know, lifestyle magazine. Yeah. Because it, it also kind of implies like he's moldable, but he also understands the standard to which men should be molded. There's kind of like a fluency that you would need to write for that kind of magazine to say like, oh, this is like what a fashionable man looks like, or this is what like the fittest man would look like or the mm-hmm. two charming men are, you know? Um, so it's like, he can kind of, is he's more equipped to play her game than some of the other men that she's. He's helped. Yeah. He's helping mold readers. Yeah. He's telling readers how a man should dress and how yeah. a man should drink a beer. That's and a what, great correlation. What kind yeah. of watch they should wear. So that's the kind of things he's writing ironically. And her revenge is always personal, no matter who's it on. So Tommy, 
he didn't like one of the things that she was doing for him was getting those ties that he didn't like that he wouldn't like to wear. And what she do when he starts to distance himself from the relationship, she ties him up with the ties or ties herself up with the ties yeah. and frames him for rape with the ties that he bought that she bought him that he wouldn't want to wear. I love when Nick asks Tommy, did you do it? And Tommy goes, did you? <laughs> <laughs> so her revenge is very personal. And then that stretches even more to Nick. The revenge is the treasure hunt leading up to this insane reveal of the garage. All of these clues, which have always been a sweet part of their courtship, their anniversary tradition, doing these clues. And it's very sweet. Like, we're so cute. I want to punch us in the face when they get themselves the accidentally the exact same gift. But using the clues as a personal form of revenge just adds so much more to the character that she takes it so personally. And I think she takes things personally because she she loves fantasy and she lives in fantasy. And so she can't cope with reality. And that's why the marriage f falls into dis disillusionment. One of the reasons why is because... When the real world hits them, like I said earlier, they lose their jobs, his mom dies, they have to move, they have to basically change their entire lives. That's real life. Real life has troubles, real life has hardships and problems, and fantasy can't handle that. And so when she's brought down to reality, she can't cope with it at all. And I think that's partly why this, since we were talking about how funny it is, like, I do the there's kind of the like the way that we talk about camp or something is kind of that intersection of where reality kind of meets like parody of reality. And because she is so focused on that fantasy, it does like verge into parody and like, unbelievability so quickly. Like this isn't, I don't think, a film where you're meant to take anything exactly literally. Like everybody's a little ridiculous and everybody's a little like strange and not serious. <laughs> um, <laughs> And that's why I love that line. It's like a very blunt, I don't know, punchline where Tyler Perry's character is just like, you two are the most fucked up people. <laughs> it's just like, it's so true. Like, you know, you sit there the whole time and somebody finally says it, you know, like y'all are crazy. Let's just relax. <laughs> I love how he immediately believes Nick Dunn too. He's like, oh, I believe it. This is some crazy <laughs> shit. <laughs> but what's so great about Amy with the filmmaking is the book and obviously of yeah. the different uh, expressions on her face leaning on Nick's chest. The identical shots. Yeah. But also Amy Dunn is like, I, we, I love characters that transform. But for Amy, it's not like she's transforming. It's more like she's been in a cocoon her whole life and now she's finally let out of that cocoon she's finally showing who she truly is inside she's been taming taming this monster inside this raid she's only let out pieces of it at a time but now at the third act of the film when she gets back to nick after murdering desi desi murdering desi is probably the final step of her kind of met her metamorphosis into her true identity so now she's out of this cocoon out of this shell and she's finally this is who i am you married me this is it baby you wanted this, and I'm I'm the best thing that ever happened to you, and, and basically, this is who I am, and she can finally be herself, which is beautiful in a way, but also horrific when it's a, a sociopath murderer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she can be herself in front of Nick, but not around anyone else. So she can she's finally free in the house, but on the surface, she's be, it's it's ironic because to the world, she's become amazing, Amy. She's become a star. She's become a success, and she's become famous just like Amy, amazing Amy was. And it's interesting because at the end, Nick obviously says he stays with her for the kid. But I also think there's part, a part of Nick wants to stay with her. Like he's choosing to for his own reasons too. I think there's a part of him that 
maybe wants to be in this marriage now, not just for the child. What do you guys think? Maybe in the sense that like the ruse is up, you know, it's just at, at a certain, it's like they've shared this extreme almost trauma together where honesty is now the only way to maintain the game when it wasn't before before it was we're lying and we kind of know that but we can't say that to each other mm -hmm. and now it's like everything's on the table cards and there's kind of a clarity in that but i wouldn't i don't know that i would go as far as to say that he's um like looking forward to their marriage <laughs> <laughs> But maybe like that is a, like, a sigh of relief a little bit to just be like, I know exactly what this is. That's yeah. actually a great point because the, the first things we hear are the narration. What are you thinking? How are you feeling? What have we done to each other? What will we do? So there's a sense that even in a marriage, you don't fully know the person you're married to. And clearly both these people misread the other person. Absolutely. And then at the end of the film, you're right. That look of this time in the first shot, she kind of glares at Nick when she looks at him. And then the final shot of the film, she smiles with a sense of contentment. Uh, and so I would say maybe that's a great point that they're all cards are on the table now. So maybe the marriage will go differently. I don't, yeah, but I don't think he's happy to be there and wants to be there because now he has to play the role that he didn't want to play when they were n married before everything happened and started to phase out of it. Now he has no choice. He has to put on this role forever. And he's trapped because not only with the, with the pregnancy, but the world, the country are all rooting for this couple and Nick is the target. If he messes up, he's going to be a horrible person. He's going to be labeled a cheater and an abuser and everything. And the world will go after Nick Dunn if he fucks up. Abandoning his wife exactly. who was kidnapped. So he has yeah. no choice. He will have no life if he leaves Amy. That's a good point. Yeah. I think it's really telling to kind of think back on what might have actually happened in their marriage. Um because we're kind of led with that unreliable narrator through their origins and things like that. But I think it's really telling that like almost from her first entry into the film, like Margot hates Amy and <laughs> very clearly. And Margot's kind of, I think like the voice of reason, like her and um, Rhonda, like Kim Dickens as the cop, like mm -hmm. the two of them are kind of, I think interesting to frame against Amy because they're so, grounded and um well-meaning and like thorough um and a little bit cynical but they contrast to her really well because they kind of i think pull the film back from just being like aren't women terrible <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, they they balance that out quite yes well. yeah i think it's important to have them because if it was just amy and there are no other strong female characters that ha were normal it would kind of be like, is that what the film's saying? But then you, especially Rhonda, who is so good at her job and commands every scene she's in, and then ends up seeing the holes through Amy's plan and tries to question her. And everybody, yeah, she's the only one. Everyone else is like offended that she's even questioning this woman who's been through so much abuse. Like, how dare you even question her story? That doesn't add up. I love, I love the character of Rhonda, and I think she's vital to the film work because her partner just goes along with whatever he's presented and doesn't really think formulaically and try to look inquisitively at what's going on like she does. And I feel like a pro a, an issue that a lot of people have when they watch films or, or misinterpretation is they'll see a specific kind of character like a female character like Amy Dunn and attribute her characteristics to like every female character in film and or, or women in general. The same thing can happen with male characters and attributing all those traits to men in film or men in the real world where it's just 
at the end of the day, it's really just one character. And it's a fantastical character that we love to watch, and she does horrific things, but it's not reality. And I think it's a, a problem when people try to associate, like, Amy Dunn is sort of like a problematic, ironic, anti-feminist character in a lot of ways, where you see that online a lot. People say, is she a feminist character? Is she an anti-feminist character? You brought up earlier, is she a misogynist character? We're really, at the end of the day, every person's different. So I think it's wrong to attribute just one one character from one movie to an entire gender of characters in film and cinema. And yeah, I mean, you don't want to say, like, all women are psychopaths because of this movie. And then, yeah. you and then it takes away the possibility <laughs> of having really interesting, great characters like Amy Dunn. But you can also have really great, interest, interesting female characters that aren't murderers at the same time. So yeah. I think you can have it all, but it's, it's an error in judgment, I think, that a lot of people, and I've seen online a lot, where you connect Amy Dunn with, oh, she's an anti-feminist character or, or a feminist character. She's a mix of everything. That's the great irony of the character. And it really comes down to Gillian Flynn and her writing so strong that it, it creates that kind of reaction because it's such a well-written character and such a well-written story. It's one of, it's one of my favorite screenplays of the last uh, couple of decades. It really is that great of a story. And she's such a talented writer. And I think it's, when the writing is that strong, people will have strong reactions to it, good and bad. Totally. I mean, I do. I think like, especially when the film was released, I think there was a lot of there was like some validity to it that I felt was necessary. And a lot of critics pointed out at the time where um, like it is it is an individual film, but it's also part of like a trope, like the fatal attraction trope and that kind of thing. But it was also, I think, especially in the minds of critics at that time, because there was was that there was like a um a guy who went on like a murderous rampage and he like murdered five women who like didn't give him enough attention or oh my god something like that like right before the film came out and so everybody was kind of on this like very attuned to these conversations of like violence with respect to like art like are women lying and all of these kinds of things so i think like that is a valid conversation to have but sometimes i think um Barbie actually <laughs> pointed this out really well where it's like really like this is a doll yeah you know what I mean like it can't this is a film it can't hold everything about this culture and like what is wrong with it in one place and sometimes like you have to take into consideration like the tone of the film and what the film is trying to say like this isn't a literal film it's not I don't think it's a political film even in that sense like there's some sociological things to take from it but I don't think it's like david fincher sitting there being like like women lie like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah like you have to go to it i think with a little bit of grace and not take it quite as literally as maybe some of the scenes are and, and that's why i love tar so much the film tar starring Kate so Blanchett. and so lydia tar is another great female character that's flawed and I feel like Hollywood was has been afraid to tell stories of great female characters that do have flaws or aren't perfect. But I love movies like that because that's, we're all flawed. We all have our great character traits and negative character traits. And I found Lydia Tarr to be an insanely refreshing character. She's obviously not a murderer, but she does have she does do bad things. Yeah, I bet she I mean, would if she had to. She could. She would she do could. anything for her success. I mean, for she sure. she tormented a child. <laughs> okay, yeah, Lydia Tarr. She's pretty messed up. But she's also a great character at the same time, and people are complex, and 
Amy Dunn's a complex character. Lydia Tara's a complex character. I think they're both connected somewhat in a way, but that's why I love the characters so much. And I'll be thinking about these characters in 10 years, in 20 years, 30 years, revisiting these movies. I mean, yeah, the, 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 Amy Dunn is going to go down as one of the great villains in film history, I think. In the century, absolutely. And it's already regarded as one of David Fincher's most loved films. And he's got such a crazy track record of great movies. It's hard to even rank them. But when you, wa when you watch this movie, I, and I watched it again a couple of weeks ago, and I was like, man, this... This is such a great movie. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I totally agree with you. I was, I'm a big tar stand myself. And I, I think like, I think Gone Girl gets compared to Fight Club a lot where um, it's sort of like a Fincher film where people often take the wrong message away. And yeah. Kind of like, <laughs> um, and, but in that sense, I think there is something like a little fun and taking the wrong message away too. I don't, I mean, maybe it's like inappropriate to say, but sometimes there's a little bit of catharsis and just like seeing someone act out and like do the wrong thing. Um, That's what fiction's for. Yeah, like that could obviously never happen in real life. It shouldn't happen in real life. I would never endorse it, but also it's fun to watch. It's like horror. I'm yeah, that, yeah, that's, that's entertainment. It's, it's entertaining to see when you see, especially with villains to see they're doing things that, I would never do and that society would never approve of, but it's fun to see it on screen. It's fun to read it. And that's just the entertainment. And that's just, that's what fiction's for. That's what the, it's a fantasy. Going to the movies is engaging in a fantasy and engaging in something fantastical as an escape. And so we, we, we find it appealing to see monsters on screen. And it reminds us of, you know, the goodness of humanity to be like, okay, that's, I'm not, I mean, at least I'm not that bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think the, the thing with Fincher, he's always attracted to stories about the per the perverseness of humanity. Mm -hmm. A lot of his films cover that. Obviously, Mank isn't really like that. But a lot of his movies, whether it's about a serial killer or killers in general, the perverse nature of humanity, the dark parts of humanity are enticing to watch. We can't look away. I mean, true crime podcasts are the top podcasting genre on the planet. Serial killer documentaries are insanely popular on Netflix and there's shows being made about them all the time. So there's something about the perversion of humanity and the dark seeds of what we're capable of that we just can't help but watch these stories and just find them so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. We're doing an episode on <laughs> evil person. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, this is inspiring me to actually read the book. That's the only one of her books I haven't read. It's great. I haven't read Girl on the Train, but this one I Girl read. Girl on the Train is an awesome book. Uh -huh. It's way better than the movie. The movie's okay, but the... Maybe yeah, yeah. Either it's a really good, it's an excellent book. I haven't read Gone Girl. I tried to because I watched the movie like six times, and I'm like, I want to read the book, but it's tough when you know everything from seeing the film already. Mm -hmm. But Girl on the Train, I watched the, I read the book, then watched the movie. But it's an excellent, excellent book. Yeah, I watched all the Dragon Tattoos before I, I saw the movies. Yeah, I actually have it right here. So, do any of you have any final thoughts on Amy Dunn and Gone Girl before we wrap up this episode? I think Amy Dunn is one of the most fascinating characters put on screen in recent memory. And Gone Girl is one of the most rewatchable films that Fincher has made. And it's very rewarding the more times you see it. It's endlessly entertaining, perfectly crafted. And it's just such a unique kind of special movie that you there's nothing you can even really compare it to. It's that special of a film. Izzy? I agree. Um, Rosin Pike should have won an Oscar for this. <laughs> I agree. I I think I think what's what is also so excellent about it is that like I think after Gone Girl, quite a few films meant to replicate Gone Girl have come out, and none have 
been as good or even I think rank near to what it achieves, which I think is just such a testament to um, Gillian Flynn's writing and to David Fincher's direction and just like the the perfection that he kind of called from all of these different actors um, doing some of their career best work in this film so yeah it's i would agree it holds up really well check it out it's on max right now yeah it's a good point because everyone's still trying to copy the social network with all these tech everyone's trying to do the social these network tech movies these origin stories of companies and products and you can't replicate a master and like everyone david tried fincher. to do seven after seven came yeah, out yeah yeah serial killers were hot after that but david fincher is one of the best filmmakers this century the last 30 years he's been so consistent and so reliable as a terrific storyteller. And we can't wait for you to watch The Killer. Let us know how you enjoy it. If you haven't seen The Killer yet, everybody, check it out. We just did an episode on it last week. Izzy from Be Kind Rewind, thank you so much for joining us. This was such a good time. We'd love to have you back on the show some other time in the future. Take care. Again, you can plug your stuff right now for our audience if you want again. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I had such a good time. This is one of my favorite movies, so it's always a pleasure to be able to talk about it with two very knowledgeable people. Um, yeah, you can find me on YouTube at Be Kind Rewind and BK Rewind on Twitter and TikTok and BK underscore Rewind on Instagram. All right, Izzy, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Again, become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Leave those five-star reviews, and thanks for tuning in, everybody. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen. Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, hit the like button as well, notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere you can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.